the budgetary situation of the country is much healthier than it normally has been. So I really get the impression that there is a willingness to look at various schemes, and especially if they if they don't uh, incur recurring expenditure. In other words, if if it's not an annual payment, but if it's some kind of capital schemes to kickstart development, then I think we're pushing a pretty open door there. At the end of last week, during one of the best days of weather during the year, Chagas held the Crops Forum. Despite the weather, a large crowd attended and most were keen to contribute to discussion about the future of the tillage industry. This is a hot topic at present, as the government policy ambition is to increase the area of tillage, which will help to lower greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture and at the same time decrease the country's dependence on grain imports. You are listening to the latest episode of The Tillage Age with me, Michael Hennessy. We would really appreciate it if you could listen, follow and give us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Dempsey, the former editor of the Irish Farmers Journal, who is now chairing the Department of Agriculture Food Vision Tillage Group. This group is discussing how to develop the tillage sector for the future and are about to release an interim report from the activities over the past few months. Matt, before we get to the report, you might give us a brief description around the Food Vision 2030 strategy and what it was trying to achieve. Well, the, the one I suppose I'm most concerned with is the tillage. But broadly, as you know, it tackled pretty well all the main sectors, laying out targets uh, for the next number of years for each of them. But in the tillage one, it was much more specific now at the moment. I think partly, to be honest with you, because there was a view that tillage was semi-neglected and was very much secondary to normal considerations. This attitude has changed for a variety of reasons, I think. So the minister and certainly a senior civil servants are much more engaged in the whole process at this stage. And when you mention those tillage targets, broadly speaking, what are the ones that were identified in that report? Yeah, well, the, the main one is to try and increase the tillage acreage from roughly 320, 330 hectares to 400 which is a, a, around a, a full million acres of tillage crops. Now, the actual cereal acreage has been in slight decline for some considerable time, and the decline has been masked to some extent by an increase in the beans and oilseed rape. But it's not enough, and the trend is clearly there. But also, as well as wanting to increase the tillage acreage, and they're doing this for a number of reasons, but I think the time is particularly good at this stage because, A, there's, as we know, there's a real nitrates and climate change discussion. And tillage is particularly well placed to relieve the livestock pressure on acres that would be under grass and in intensive dairying and beef. So that's the first one. And secondly, of course, the, the budgetary situation of the country is much healthier than it normally has been. So I really get the impression that there is a willingness to look at various schemes and especially if they, if they don't uh, incur recurring expenditure. In other words, if, if it's not an annual payment, but if it's some kind of capital schemes to kickstart development, then I think we're pushing a pretty open door there. So then there's the general appreciation that tillage feeds into other sectors and into the food and drinks industry so that it's an important component of the, of the national agricultural output. Okay. And within that Food Vision 2030 strategy, there was a number of groups were set up to try and look at the 
opportunities, I suppose, and challenges. And I suppose eventually they, they, they've got around to setting up the tillage one, which was set up there just before the summer. Yeah. You, you might maybe uh, describe a little bit around that particular group. Who's on that group? When do you have to report? What's the, I suppose, the rationale around it? Again, I think in some ways it, it was sparked by the formation of a tillage industry Ireland grouping, uh, which has all the main farm farmer and merchant and input bodies as part of it, all with a vested interest in trying to get tillage seen in a new light and trying to get increases in it. So broadly, then, who've we, so who have we got at this stage? This Tillage Industry Ireland, as, as I say, uh, and they're represented broadly. Andy Doyle is the chair of Tillage Industry Ireland. He was Tillage editor of the Farmers Journal. But there's also the Irish fertilizer blenders and manufacturers, there's the retail merchants, and there's the animal and plant health, in other words, the main chemical input suppliers. So they're an integral part of it. But then there's about 30 in the group altogether. And it's been refreshing from one point of view trying to chair it, in that there's been no grandstanding. I mean, you've got the Irish grain growers and then the ACORN, the independent merchants, the Irish Grain and Feed Association, the Irish Grain Assurance Scheme, IGAS, uh, which we can come back to later, then Tyrlon and Dairy Gold are both there as really major cooperative buyers and sellers into the market, obviously. Tyrlon, formerly Glanbia, would obviously be the largest single purchaser of Irish produced grain and has an enormous milling and supply business as well, as has Dairy Gold. Then interestingly, they also included Food Drinks Ireland and the farm and forestry contractors, as well as the IFA, the ICMSA, ICSA and MACRA. And then as part of it, the Tagus Board BIA and UCD. So it's a, it's a fairly wide constant, it's a fairly widespread uh, interest among the group. And I don't think there's anyone really badly left out of it. So they're the group that sit around the table. We've had six meetings so far and we have produced an interim report, which has a list of recommendations and actions. The real trick will be in getting a final report out uh, that we're prepared to politically, as it were, stand behind and recommend to the minister and department and government that if they want to make progress, then the following types of actions are really important. So that's the aim for the final document, which I expect will probably be out in the November period. We just released the preliminary report a few weeks ago, uh, and that's, that'll form the basis then for, for going on from here. And so the preliminary report is real. It's a reflection of the six meetings you've had to date and the, you know, some, yeah. some of the discussions around maybe specific topic areas and that kind of thing. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so, uh, so, so maybe with that, we you might maybe just step down through some of the, I suppose, maybe we call them preliminary recommendations or areas to look at. Maybe that might be the way to do it. So the first one um, is the tillage incentive scheme. Now, that was a one-year scheme. It was successful to an extent in, in what it was hoped to do, which was, which was to expand the tillage area. But I think everyone recognises that, in fact, in some ways, for some of the participating farms, it became a grass reseeding scheme, which is fine. Um, you can't blame anyone for taking advantage of a scheme that's drawn up. It was drawn up very quickly in the heat of the emergency feeling from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the worries about everyone running out of cereals. Now, we know that that hasn't happened, but that's not the issue. But I can see a revamped tillage incentive scheme 
being strongly recommended and probably being implemented probably on a five-year basis that the land, if it's going to qualify for payments, would have to stay in serials. But I suspect five years would probably be it. But then there's also, um, do we want to have a look at the extra supports that have come in? And some of them have been really interesting, like the Straw and Corporation Scheme, which actually we never thought would be a real runner. But it has, and a lot of people have applied for it, and there's a fair bit of money involved, and coupled with the Protein Aid Scheme. Now, one of those is funded in the main from Brussels, and one is funded from Dublin. But the two are contributing to a significant inflow of cash, but much more to the point in the case of the Protein Aid Scheme. It's another place, another crop in the rotation, and of course, it's fulfilling a need for protein to be produced in Europe, of which Europe is extremely short. So we've had good technical uh, technical discussions around the place of beans and are they still suitable and how should they be treated and can they replace the soya that's obviously imported into much of the national rations? And the answer is they can. So I would expect to see the protein aid scheme probably extended. And also I think the, the straw and cooperation scheme. Though interestingly, it's not very clear how the mushroom industry views the straw and cooperation scheme because as you know, they mainly rely on wheat and straw as the base material for the compost. Then I think the main one, though, that's probably most current is, is there a way for getting rid of slurry uh, and excess nutrients from intensively stocked livestock farms onto tillage farms, especially with low index farms uh, and where organic matter would be a welcome addition? Uh, with the nitrates debate, this has really come centre stage in a major way. And I think what we're looking at is not uh, a view that, it's a, that we're not going to do it. It's a question of how, how can we do it? What's the most efficient way? Uh, I don't think anybody, certainly the department, doesn't want to get in to a transport subsidising kind of scheme. But I can see some kind of mechanism um, evolving where tillage farmers will be encouraged to use some uh, P and K slurries, especially from well-stocked derogation farms. And of course, the advantages for the derogation farms are very real, because if they can show and verify that they're getting rid of sufficient slurry, then this counts as a reduction in livestock production. Certainly, my knowledge of tillage farmers, there's very few would ever refuse organic manures if it, it was reasonably cost efficient to do it. Yeah. But I suppose half the battle is always trying to leverage that away from the intensive livestock farmer. Is there is there uh, something that's innovative in there, do you think, that, 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 that can actually lead to something like that happening? Well, if the livestock farmer is in derogation territory, and is vulnerable on that basis and is on high index land already. Now, of course, he's allowed to put out his own slurry. But if the derogation is reduced, as it seems to be almost definitely from the 250 to 220, then if he doesn't reduce, if they don't reduce stock numbers, sorry, if they don't reduce slurry output, then they're going to either have to reduce stock numbers or get extra land. It's one or the other. Now, land rental prices have increased enormously. I'm not trying to show what the latest trends are with the reduction in both milk and cereal prices, but it would ease a lot of financial pressure if there was some mechanism, some verifiable mechanism to get the slurry from where it's in excess 
and demonstrably in excess on some of the derogation farms to where it's needed on the tillage farms. Uh, one way out, obviously, would be to give a significant grant aid to the storage of slurry on tillage farms that could be used, as, uh, that it could be transported at odd times in the year and stored until it's best needed and can be best used. And I think that's one possibility. But any farmers that I have spoken to have a real aversion to sending to high transport distances for slurry. But something is going to have to be done and there's going to be, have to be some way of getting a decent analysis of the slurry, verifying that and verifying the movement if it's to be a real runner. But in my view, there is a real will to see some kind of new mechanism in place. And do you think in that, uh, Matt, there's um, the umbilical cord type system and nurse tanks and the ability, I suppose, really for tillage farmers to apply that nutrient in a, in a growing crop, you know, when there's a when there's more demand for it? Do you think that might be in the mix as well? I think it's, that's clearly the ideal solution for some farmers. Um, to tool up with the umbilical system uh, is not cheap, uh, but the effectiveness of it being applied in that February to I suppose, what, April period is very real if it's applied well. Um, also, of course, obviously, you're doing much less damage to the land uh, because you've only the tractor with a wide dribble bar or some kind of shoe applying the slurry instead of very heavy tankers uh, going up and down the tram lines and causing real damage unless you're on very wide flotation tyres and then you're compressing the, the cereals itself. So I think that's that's, in my view, the way it's going to go. And I think there's going to be an interesting opportunity for tags to run demonstrations of best practice in this whole area so that people can come and see and see if it can fit into their system. We're, we're, we're ahead of the curve there, Matt, on that. We had three already this year, but we're more, willing, more than willing to repeat that And because the farmers yeah. who, who have used it are very happy with what we've yeah, done on that. Yes. So our yeah. signpost farms are very much a, a, a ahead of that. So in terms of the other one there, I suppose that lots of farmers get uh, very, um, I suppose, excited about is the recognition of Irish grain and the diets. Is that is that um, a part of this process as well? It's part of what we've talked about. Um, the IGAS, the grain Irish Grain Assurance Scheme, has recently become internationally accredited with a very high rating. So it's there. But we've under a different and um, last year, the year before, we had some discussions with Board Bia before the ministerial group was set up, and I can understand where they're coming from. We're importing about seventy percent of the animal feed that's used in the country. So if you go out and promote uh, the value of Irish feed uh, in the food you're buying, are you in some sense slightly denigrating uh, the? foodstuffs that aren't consuming Irish feed. And this is going. This has been a dilemma for um, Bourbia especially, but it's one I think that we're going to have to come to grips with to some extent as to how you square that circle. Uh, it's much easier, obviously, in the specialist food area like the gluten-free oats or indeed the drinks area uh, where Irish grain can be specified and stood over uh, where you have such a large degree of import of both carbohydrate and protein, I can see some interesting discussions taking place, and I'm still not quite sure of how that methodology can be worked out with the best will in the world. One of the ways that might be is if you've got some kind of credit for the carbon footprint, the reduced carbon footprint involved with using Irish grain as distinct from imported grain. 
that can be relatively easily calculated at this stage. Now, where the money would come from and who'd pay it is another day's work, but it's certainly worth something. And I know it's something that we're going to try and tease out uh, and get. One of the advantages of the grouping is that with the ministerial and department backing, uh, we've had really good presentations from people not directly part of the group, but with a lot of expertise in various areas. And one of them we're certainly going to be looking at is this whole carbon footprint for printing and how to get credit for it if Irish, if, if Irish material is used in rations. Okay. And in terms of the, um, uh, I, I suppose, aligned with that is, is the recognition maybe of some of the, the Irish ingredients. You mentioned protein crops earlier, recognition of that within the rations. Um, because I, I suppose it's there, there's um, within the industry, there's difficulty, shall we say, I suppose, uh, being, being called out by millers in terms of the inclusion of that um, uh, with the likes of soya or, or, or uh, other ingredients like that being easier to include. I'm not quite sure how much easier it is to include. What we have been told fairly vigorously is that Beans obviously only come in at one time of the year, so extra storage is needed in the compounders' yards and feed manufacturers' yards. And I can certainly see some kind of capital grant forthcoming for specialised storage and processing facilities for, we'll say, the likes of native beans. So I think it's obviously for other compounders, it's much easier just to pick up a phone and order 30 tonnes of soya to be delivered in the morning, and that takes care of everything. So there's going to have to be there's going to have to be some kind of extra storage and processing built, and that's going to require money. And I can see that, that money, because it's capital investment, as being made available in the interests of getting uh, greater use of native ingredients with the spin-offs that we've already mentioned. And do you think in in, in that kind of processing facility that will allow the production of material to go into the food chain as well, or would that be more towards just the animal feed sector? Uh, there's no reason why it shouldn't why it shouldn't go into the animal food chain. Now it depends what you mean by the animal food chain. Uh, I mean the the direct the only direct um, Irish food cereal grown is oats at this stage. The million wheat industry is going to come under the microscope now in our next in our next um, examination. Um, practically 100 percent of the flour, apart from some very small artisan flour producers, is coming in from Britain. Uh, Brexit has changed that environment to an extent in that it doesn't come in as freely, um, especially um, obviously if it contains Canadian flour, uh, while British flour by itself would be allowed in, normally the British flour is not suitable uh, by itself. So with the Canadian mix, it's not allowed in um, without going through the general importation requirements uh, of, of the CAP. So there is undoubtedly a theoretical opportunity, at least, to see the resurgence of some type of Irish flour milling industry, which would answer that question. The porridge and oatmeal is a different area. Um, we're growing those well. We're getting good yields. Uh, there's good plant breeding programs in place for them. And the market seems to be expanding pretty continuously. And the last one that you mentioned there is the drinks. And again, uh, I think it's about 300,000 tonnes, but I might be wrong, going into the drinks industry. So it's a, it's a very significant purchaser of Irish products. Now, there is a bit of an anomaly there, in my view, in that uh, some of the Irish whiskey is still using French maize as the basic cereal. 
as, as the basic cereal going into manufactured starch for drink for the drinks industry. There's Tagusk have done some really interesting work that you'll be more better aware of than I, uh, where it's showing that some of the winter wheat varieties are at least on a par with French maize as regards starch content, where some are well behind. So I think we'll probably see some extra identification of the favourable varieties, as well as some extra discussions uh, with the drinks industry. Yeah, that's certainly an interesting one. And there's some very good results coming from a, a joint research programme between Chagas and and um, uh, SET or the, the, I suppose, more locally known here is the the, the Carlo Carlo, Carlo uh, IT uh, across the door from us. But yeah, there's yes. some re- really interesting results coming from that. Um, just on 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 the other one that strikes me, I suppose that that a lot of uh, tillage farmers will be looking at is access to land and how can they on one side retain their existing land rental uh, on a maybe eleven month basis or or, or the leases that are there because they really are up against it in terms of the competition from intensive livestock farmers. Is there any, is that being looked at? It is being looked at. And um, there's all kinds of suggestions coming forward, Michael. There's, um, should the tax consent to be confined to tillage growers? Should tillage land be ring-fenced and not allowed back into grass? I can see difficulties with both. I think in the Irish context, uh, now people will, will say that in the early days of the Fischler reforms, uh, you could only plant crops on eligible land that it crops on before. Uh, but whether you can freeze freeze land and prevent going into anything else, I think a lot of farmers would object to and with some reason. Uh, but it's certainly being looked at and we will see what happens. Um, I am not quite sure what the final shape will be. I can see the leasing uh, concessions being continued, certainly. Uh, but would they be differentially tilted in favour of tillage growers? That's going to have to something that will be that will have to come up for discussion, and I'm not quite sure how it will end up, even as a recommendation, let alone as government policy. I had a I had a very interesting uh, f- farmer uh, give me an interesting insight into that. He, he said you're after this is coming back to crops forum of which you participated on last Friday. He said you're after uh, really outlining how well the tillage sector is doing in terms of a low carbon emitting sector why don't we link that to some of the leases i thought it was an interesting way of looking at it yes to yeah it is of course yeah it is how amenable politically that will be uh, and how practical it'll be i don't know um any taxation leasing measures are going to have to be run by the department of finance and so they'll have to be really well thought out and a convincing case made for them on some of the other areas then, Matt, any discussion around the price volatility and how, or is there anything that can, can happen? Yeah, in that you took the, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, we had a really interesting presentation from one guy who gave examples from the states of crop insurance schemes, uh, some of which are paid by farmers and some of which are underwritten by the state, but to try and remove the volatility out of the business. Now, the last two years are absolutely classic. Uh, where the end price last year was, I think it was 306 quid a tonne for feed wheat. And it had been higher than that earlier this time last year. Uh, whereas this year, it seems we'll be lucky to break 200, 205 euro a tonne. So the volatility is really there. Uh, so there's no reason why there shouldn't be either a move towards some kind of form, um, forward selling or whether there should be some kind of income stability scheme underwritten by government at the end of the day. Um, but I think that a lot of farmers are not well equipped to deal with the t- 
intense volatility that we've seen over the last few years. <clears throat> and this is seen as a may, certainly as a shortcoming and something that puts people off getting too deep into the tillage sector if their income is going to be so volatile and subject to such huge shifts totally outside their control. Yeah, absolutely. Very difficult. And I suppose that combined with the price of inputs this year, one with the other is not going to make a pretty year. But um, it, so that that's a very interesting one. Is there any, any other elements that you wanted to point to, Matt, that, that, that are probably going to come out of this report? I mean, we've also... Uh, and again, um, we've left the minister under no doubt that the the um, the farm to fork strategy of dramatically reducing availability of needed uh, plant protection products is simply putting the cart before the horse. Uh, I mean, it's been pretty well established that government in Europe and also Britain, in fact, uh, have requested. Uh, permission to use products that are theoretically banned because there is no sensible alternative and they're necessary. Uh, and I think that has to be some kind of armory that the Irish government will be, and the Irish department and minister uh, will be more ready to use. From a negotiating point of view in Brussels, uh, there is a view that the Irish yields, which are on a world scale right at the top, but they do need, because of climatic conditions, good plant protection products. Uh, and that we should take, we should follow that line. That if there isn't a sensible alternative, and if the product is not shown to be actually dangerous, then why shouldn't it be used rather than almost unilaterally withdrawn? There's that end of the plant protection products, and there is also the very strong feeling that European farmers are being discriminated against uh, by importing material which is both GM, which is fine by some, but not by others, but not allowed in Europe. So importing GM products and also G importing GM, or sorry, importing products that have been treated with plant protection products that are not allowed in the European Union. This is seen and acknowledged as unfair competition, and there will have to be some give, I think, in this area. And certainly a halt will have to be brought to the whole-scale abandonment of molecules that have real use, but which have no sensible alternative. Matt, it, 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 and our time is against us a little bit, but you certainly have got through a huge amount of ground there just in the last uh, 15 or 20 minutes. So there's there's a huge more, and, and I do know there are other elements uh, to come in that. You might tell us, what's the next step in terms of um, bringing some of the, the areas that you mentioned into, uh, I, I suppose, a solid recommendation going to, going to government and the industry? Well, we've been well-serviced from the department point of view with very competent um secretarial minute minute recording analysis of what the recommendations are so then it's a question in my view of firming up on the recommendations and one of the ones which i didn't mention was that we also have with the increase in the amount of oilseed rape uh, is there a, a renewed case for some kind of sensible crushing plant here in ireland instead of exporting at all, except for a tiny bit made for the rapeseed oil. But in the main, all our oilseed rape is exported for crushing. Yes. And then this is seen as a wasted opportunity. And certainly there, it will be fleshed out as to what kind of minimum acreage and tonnage is needed for a viable plant here in Ireland. So um, I, I suppose you, you outlined kind of the next steps in, in, in terms of trying to trying to bring it into that, that, that policy um end of it is there a um and maybe the final question to you around this is there still an opportunity for farmers or maybe somebody from the industry to contribute to this maybe there's 
a number of people out there with some good ideas that uh, might like to try and feed them in. How would that happen? Oh, yeah. Listen, there's absolutely no problem. Um, if you've good ideas or anything to add, deli- we'd be delighted to hear from you. Um, just um, let me get the, um, the, there is a tillage, there is the, the tillage examination website. We can, we can put it, we can put it on the notes afterwards, Matt, if you want, but I, I presume that essentially anybody can, can contact their local um, IFA or IGG representative in, in, in the first instance. Or Apart from that though, Michael, you know, if the group and there's 30 of us, if there's a number say, you know, this is a really brilliant idea. We hadn't thought about it. Let's get this guy in and hear what he has to say. We've had a lot of outsiders making presentations to the group. So there's absolutely nothing to prevent an invitation being issued to a person or a group with ideas that we think are really sensible. Very, very, very sensible thing to do because it's um, it's always hard to get the good ideas, but uh, the, the, no, the nugget of an idea can often be uh, developed yeah. into something that could be really, really sensible and really usable for the industry. Yeah, exactly. And and we want to tap whatever knowledge and original thinking is out there uh, before we, we before we sign off in the final report. Matt, I think on behalf of all the listeners we have, uh, and, and they're all very much in the tillage industry, certainly congratulations to you and to everybody else. And we, we, we certainly will be looking forward to some really strong recommendations coming out of this report. And uh, I suppose more importantly, whatever about the recommendations, action on, on top of that to try and drive on the tillage industry and, and make it a stronger one for in the longer term. Matt, thanks very much. Not at all. Pleasure. We'll save the congratulations when we see the action put into, put into effect. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we, we'll try and come up with as good a report with as solid recommendations for real progress as we can. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. Okay, not at all. So that's it for this week. And my thanks to Matt for joining me on the show. Don't forget, if you enjoyed the podcast, then recommend it to a friend or colleague. And as always, rate, review and follow on Apple or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.